I don't know about you, but I think prayer might be one of the spiritual disciplines I, I struggle with the most. And I think if we took a, a survey of our congregation and just a, a survey in general, we would find that many, many Christians, maybe most Christians, struggle with their prayer life. Most of us would say, I, I wish I prayed more. I wish I prayed more effectively. I wish I prayed more strategically. And that's a, that's a, a sense of the goodness of God resonating in our hearts that we want to do better. Now, in the, in the passage that we read to us today, we need to remember what comes before it. Now, think back with me just a few weeks. Jesus and a scribe engaged in a question and answer scenario as to which commandment was greatest of all. 613 commandments in their Bible, our Old Testament, which was the greatest. And it was all, it was all condensed into two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan was to help us understand what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And then last week we looked at the scenario where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And a part of that scenario teaches us what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. One way we love God wholeheartedly is by sitting at the feet of Jesus, reading his word and allowing his spirit to use it in our lives. And so as we turn to the next passage, you'll notice it says it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place. We don't know where this happened. We don't know the time relationship between this event and the previous event when Jesus was in Bethany and Mary was seated at his feet. But we should understand there's a connection between the two. That just because we start a new chapter doesn't mean that this is completely disconnected from what we've just read. We've just been reading in the previous section, 38 through 42 of chapter 10, one way we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is by digging into His Word, reading His Word even allowing it to be read to us, maybe while we're doing things around the house, the intake of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to conform the people of God into the image of the Son of God, that's a part of loving Jesus. But another part is praying to Jesus. The Word is the Spirit speaking to us. Prayer is us speaking to God, building relationship with God engaging and fellowshipping and communing with God. So this isn't just a, an isolated event. In Luke's mind, Luke is discipling his readers, that's you and me. Luke is communicating to you and to me, this is how you draw close to God, through the Word of God and prayer with God. But a lot of people find it hard to pray, as I've mentioned, and there are a variety of reasons that are given. Now, let me give you three excuses that people give for not praying. Maybe one of these resonates with you. I don't have time to pray. 
My life is so busy, so full, I, I just don't have time to pray. Pastor, I wish it were different. Uh, I wish I could carve out a little bit of time, but I, I get up in the mornings and I hit the ground running and I'm going full steam. I tuck the kids in bed at night. I'm literally exhausted and stumble into my bed and, and collapse to, into sleep. Well, that may very well be true, but I want to talk with you a little bit about your social media usage. Do you know in 2022, an average social media user spent two and one half hours every day on social media? And you may immediately say, well, I know that's not me. Well, start adding up 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there, 30 minutes here. Start adding it up. And the average person on social media spends two and one half hours a day on social media. 50% of their time on their phones is spent on social media. So they spend half of their time on their, on their phone scrolling the internet, looking at Snapchat, Instagram, uh, you, you'll have to help me with some of the others, Facebook. 50% of the time that they're on their phones isn't making phone calls, it's browsing the internet. The average person who is on Facebook spends 58 minutes a day. 58 minutes a day. Oh my goodness. That's like, when I, when I read that statistic, I just thought to myself, that's a waste of time. Now, keeping up with your family and friends, am I saying get off, uh, get off Facebook, don't read the news on, on your phone? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you may have a lot more time to pray than you thought you did. You know, the average American spends one to four hours every day on television. One to four hours every day. 22% of Americans watch more than four hours of TV a day. Now, that might not be TV. You may be watching a movie on your phone or whatever it may be. Uh, for some people, they spend somewhere in the neighborhood of four hours a day. And it's not that you don't have a busy life. It's not that they're, I'm, I'm not suggesting you get rid of, uh, necessarily get rid of Facebook, though that might not be a bad idea, that you get off Instagram. I'm not suggesting that. That might not be a bad idea. Uh, not saying that you ought to sell your TV. What I'm suggesting is you may have more time than you think you have. One person put it this way, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Now, there's different kinds of busyness. One kind of business, busyness that I'm talking about right here is, is foolishness. That is spending that amount of time on social media and then thinking, I, I just don't have time to, to spend in prayer. Sometimes folks say this, I honestly have not known prayer to make much of a difference. You, you, you dig down behind the hurt and the pain and the disappointment in their life, and, and they would just be honest about the fact. They wouldn't be proud of it. They would just say, I haven't known prayer to make much of a difference. 
I think the reason for this in myself is that sometimes I make prayer my last hope rather than my first choice. It's my last hope rather than my first choice. It's like, you've heard me say this many times, it's like throwing a Hail Mary at the end of a football game. It almost never works. Oh, once in a while, there's a, there's a, a, a fluke and there is a, a, a final catch on the final play from 60 yards away and the ball's tipped up in the air and somebody uh, catches it in, a, in an outstretched, uh, outstretched uh, leap. It almost never works. The reason for this, in part, I think, is that God typically works incrementally. So we allow a child, we allow a friend, we allow our marriage, we allow a work situation to get so bad that when we can't stand it anymore and we turn to God for prayer, we want Him to undo what we've allowed to take place without any prayer for sometimes weeks, months, or years. But God doesn't do things instantaneously very often. That is, not many people are saved like the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he was a rabid uh, hater of the early church. And God struck him down on the Damascus Road just like that. He was converted. No precursors, nothing going on in his heart and mind as far as we know. In fact, if you read Galatians 2, you would see he was anything but prepared. But often we want God to do in a loved one in a matter of days or weeks what we've allowed to go months or years that we haven't addressed in prayer. And sometimes God doesn't answer because He wants to use us as a part of the answer. So you have a a, a wayward friend or a straying daughter, and she gets in a very, very bad place. She's been running from God for for quite some time, and, and so you fall on your face and you beg and you plead and you cry, God, do something, please help them. And occasionally, God does something in a moment like that. Usually, God expects us to get up off of our knees and call that daughter, take her to dinner, send her a text, look for opportunity to have her to the house. God typically works incrementally, and often He uses us as a part of the answer to the prayer. We may have been a part of the problem. And so sometimes we say, I I just don't think, I just don't think that that prayer works, but we probably we've made it our last, our last hope. The author of Hebrews said this about Jesus. Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission. A third reason why people sometimes don't pray is they don't know what to say. They don't know how to pray. I mean, there's a genuine, honest concern for them. Uh, Pastor, I just don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I, I listen to you, I, I listen to the pastors of the church, I listen to the, to the directors of my Bible fellowship group, and, and their prayers are so articulate, 
and so well and so well spoken. Uh, they're they're passionate. They're real. They're genuine. And I just I just can't pray like that. I I don't, I don't know how to pray like that. Well, this is exactly where the disciples are. If you'll notice in chapter eleven. In verse 1, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. He's been praying. They're listening to him pray. They want to be taught to pray by him, just like John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. And so Jesus says to them, when you pray. He doesn't say take a class on prayer. He doesn't say read a book on prayer. He doesn't say to go to a conference on prayer. He doesn't say turn to, tune into a podcast on prayer. Nothing necessarily wrong with any of those things, but you can know a lot about prayer and never spend much time praying. Just like you can teach a lot of courses about how to love your spouse, but not be a very loving spouse. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to experience it in the heart. And many people, they just genuinely, authentically feel, uh, feel a lot of a lot of hesitancy about praying. But he says, when you pray, so the only way to start praying and becoming effective in prayer is to start praying, to begin praying. And so what we have beginning in verse 2 is Jesus giving instruction. So we are being discipled by the divine master. We have Jesus himself teaching you and me how to pray. We're wondering, I, I don't feel very confident in my prayer life. I don't feel very secure in my prayer life. I feel very embarrassed by my prayer life. Now we're getting the best conference we could ever have. We're getting the best advice anyone has ever received. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he's going to teach us how to pray by helping us understand what we can pray. Now this prayer is, in a sense, is kind of formulaic in, in the sense it's a pattern that we can follow. When we don't know what to pray, how to pray, how to get started, right here's a place to begin. But it's not where we necessarily will have to always remain. So let's just walk through this. Let's take every word or phrase apart. Jesus was discipling his disciples and now Jesus is discipling you and me. A lot of people want to be mentored. No better mentor than the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people like to be mentored in prayer. No better mentor in prayer than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's see what he says. First, prayer begins with a recognition that God is our Father. That God is our Father. Father, he says. He doesn't say master, though master's a good word for God. He doesn't say king, though king's a good word for God. He says Father. Why Father? Because Father is a word that invites someone into a close personal relationship. None of us are perfect fathers and mothers, but we love our children, and hopefully our children know that we love them. You may have had a father who wasn't a very good father. Maybe your father had all kinds of problems. It's hard for you to wrap your mind around the fact that that God is a father, a perfect father, when, when you've never really experienced that. But as you read through the Bible, you see what kind of father he is. He's kind, he's caring, he's loving, he's forgiving. He wants to bless us and guide us and give to us. 
And so when we say Father, we're being invited into the study of our loving Creator. We're being invited into the presence of one who cares for us more than anyone in the world cares for us and who cares for us more than all of the people in the world who care for us, loaded down together. There's no comparison by uh, in how much he cares for us and everybody else in all the world cares for us. And so we're not going into to pester. We're not going in to beg. We're going into the presence of one who loves us with an immeasurable love. One who loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place. So, so where do we begin with prayer? We begin with the recognition that God is our father. God is your father if you know him through the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to convince him to love you. You don't have to earn his love. He loves you unconditionally. And there's nothing you can ever do that will cause him to love you less than he loves you right now because his love is unconditional. Second, pray that God will be treated with reverence and respect. Uh, notice the way that Jesus puts it, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed's not a word that we use very often. It's not a word in our vocabulary. It means to, to treat someone with reverence and respect and honor. And when it says, hallowed be your name, he doesn't mean the name God. He means the person God. The name stands for the person. When we say Father, it represents God. It's who God is. So it's showing reverence and respect and awe and honor to God. Now, the name God is a very, we don't want to diminish that. We don't want to depreciate the name Father. But primarily, he's talking about God's person, who God is. And so if we're going to treat God with honor and reverence and respect, obviously we're not going to use his name in vain. When I was growing up, a lot of my friends called their dad their old man. Now, I wasn't a Christian kid, and I didn't have the best father. I just couldn't call my dad that. I just couldn't, I just couldn't refer to him in that way. I loved him too much. And so do you. So you'll hear people talk about the big man upstairs. Either they're very spiritually immature and we need to show them grace, or we just need to understand they may not know, they may not know God, and we still need to show them grace. But we want to speak, we want to speak about our Father with reverence and awe and, and respect. So we, we enter into God's presence with this in mind. If I'm going to speak about God in that way, I need to live toward God in that way. That is, my words need to be a reflection of who I am. So if I'm speaking to God with reverence and respect and honor, then I need to live with respect and honor and reverence toward Him. I don't want my prayers to be contradicted by my, by my choices. Uh, third, he says, your kingdom come. Now, you'll remember most of us know the Lord's Prayer from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus used this pattern on multiple occasions to teach people in different settings uh, about a, a simple approach 
to God, a simple approach to prayer. And in Matthew's gospel, he's teaching it to a huge crowd on the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's using it again in an abbreviated form to, to his disciples privately. He says, your kingdom come. The kingdom is the rule and the reign of God. So when we say your kingdom come, what we're doing is we are submitting ourselves to God's agenda for our lives. When we say your kingdom come, we're saying rule and reign over every part of my life. The way I interact with my wife, the way that I speak to my children, the way that I use my money, the way that I think about people, the way that I, the way that I do my job, that in every area of life there's an expansion of the rule and the reign of God. So I go to work and I work hard and I give my employer a full day's work for a full day's pay. We want the kingdom of God to reign and to rule in the way that we work. We want the kingdom of God to rule in the reign, reign in the way that we interact with other people. And so when, I pray, when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for an expansion of God's kingdom in the world, but also in our lives. Fourth, uh, pray that God provides you with the necessities of life, food, clothing, housing, friendships. Notice he, he speaks very directly, give, give us each day our daily bread. And that would have resonated much more in the ancient world than it does in our world. It resonates much more in third world countries where people die of starvation or on the streets of America where homeless people are dying of starvation. It, it resonates much more with them than it does with us. But when he says, give us each day our daily bread, he's talking about the fact that there are certain fundamental needs that we have. Food, clothing, housing, all of these are fundamental needs, but so is friendship. So is meaningful work. That is, we don't want to, to, to narrow this down that it only refers to what we eat. It refers to what we need. I mean, really need. Sometimes we pray for things we don't need, and that's super fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, he, but he's talking about the essentials of life. For example, let's think about friendship for just a moment. Give me each day meaningful relationships. Well, God hears that prayer, but as I've said before, often God wants to use us as a part of the answer to the prayer that we're praying. And so we say, Father, give me meaningful relationships. And then what we do is we look for people that we would like to be friends with, which that's not necessarily a bad thing, but maybe we ought to look for people who need friends. Maybe we gain friendships by being a friend to people that don't have friends. See, that turns the prayer outward rather than making it inward. Uh, that's putting feet to the prayer that I'm praying. So what would God do? He will, he will help me to see people who need people. Nobody wants to be my friend. Okay, then be a friend to somebody else for heaven's sake. You're 45 years old, grow up a little bit and speak to somebody. <laughs> it's not that hard. I, 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 I don't know where to turn. Pray, 
Give me friends today. Then look for people who need friends. There is you a friend. God wants to use us to unselfish, this isn't a word, I'm going to try and pronounce it as though it were a word, unselfishify ourselves. Because we're basically selfish people. We're basically a people primarily concerned with ourselves because we're fallen people. Even the most mature of us are still having to, having to deal battle with selfishness. And we will our entire earthly life. Give us today the things that we need. Fifth, pray for forgiveness. Uh, pray for forgiveness for your sin your thoughts and your actions. We sin every single day. Well, I'm not sure that that's true every day, Pastor. Ask your, ask your spouse, they will tell you. Ask your children, they can point it out. We sin every day by the, either the things we think, the things we say, or the actions that we perform. And so we don't need to be saved again, but we need to be forgiven. He says, and forgive us our sins. If Jalen and I have a, have, a, have a tift, and usually I'm on the, on the tifting side, and I go to her and I say, uh, sweetheart, forgive me. I'm sorry I, I said what I said, and I'm sorry I said it the way that I, I said it. I don't need, we don't need to get married again. She might change her mind. I don't want that to be an option for her. We don't need to get married, but, but if I've hurt her, our fellowship and communion are, are damaged. And so we ask God to forgive us, and that involves asking others to forgive us because typically when we sin, it's a sin against other people often. And not only when he says, forgive us our sins, Notice it's the only one that he expands on, the only one that he, that he extends. It's the only one of the requests that has an addendum. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. But he doesn't say anything about them asking us. Well, I'll forgive them if they ask me. I can't forgive them if they don't ask me. He doesn't say that. Nobody asked him on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Nobody at the cross said, forgive me, I'm sorry I impaled you on the cross. That's a ridiculous idea that we can't forgive people if they don't ask us to forgive them. It doesn't make sense to me that we hold on to bitterness and resentment because nobody has said, will you forgive me? No, he says, forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And so we need to receive forgiveness. We need to extend forgiveness. In Paul Miller's book, The Praying Life, he had something to say I think I found very convicting to me this week as it relates to forgiveness patience, long-suffering. He says, we are seldom aware of our impatience. 
what we feel is everyone else's slowness. Because we are naturally the center of our universes, we don't feel irritable. We just notice everyone's getting in our way. Frustration is a sign of prayerlessness. Mark it down. Whether it's your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your neighbor, frustration is a sign of prayerlessness. I've never known a person with an effective prayerless life who has overwhelming frustration because people are too slow and they're getting in my way. We, for, we ask forgiveness. We need forgiveness. We extend forgiveness. Sixth, as you pray, realize you're engaging in spiritual warfare. He says, and do not lead us into temptation. Now, we could misunderstand what he means by that. James says to us, God cannot be tempted, and God doesn't tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verse 13. So, what's the point that Jesus is making here? Well, you remember Matthew also has the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's a little bit more expanded. He's teaching to the crowds. And after he says, and do not lead us into temptation, he goes on to say, but deliver us from the evil one. So when we pray, when we pray, do not lead us into temptation, we're praying that God would alert us to the enemy's traps, to the, to the enemy's ambush. Because we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces of darkness. Our prayer life is intricately connected to our holiness. It's all wrapped up in victory over the enemy, our prayer lives. And so when we pray, we're engaging in spiritual warfare. So a, a vibrant prayer life makes us more sensitive to the spirits alert, alerting us. He's setting a trap for you. He's setting a trap for you. The rising frustration you, come, you, you feel coming towards your children, that's a trap for you. And, and the Spirit alerts us in our hearts. He's setting a trap for you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that, that God provides a way of escape with every temptation. A vibrant prayer life causes us to see reality a little bit better, and we, and we see the avenue out of a particular temptation. So when we pray, we're fighting the thief who has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. When we pray, we're fighting the one who's like a roaring lion. When we pray, we're defeating the great red dragon in Revelation who is called the devil. And so prayer is warfare. Prayer is war. And when we pray for our children, we're going to war for our children. When we pray for our spouse, we're going to battle for our spouse. When we pray for a close friend, we're engaging in heavenly combat for that friend. But what often happens is because we don't know how to pray, we don't have time to pray, or we don't think that prayer works, 
when that, when that person is, is, succumbs to the temptations of the devil, we begin to pray for them and we want God to undo what years of, of prayer of lack of intercession on our part, we want him to, 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 to snap to it. He'll probably use us as part of the answer to the prayer, but he works incrementally because people don't fall into deep sin instantaneously. It happens incrementally as well. Well, let me finish up with just a couple of final thoughts with you the, this morning. As you think about what we've been talking about, one thing that you might do over the next week is just track how many times you look at your phone. How many internet searches you do, how much news you read, how many posts you make, how many uh, tweets you, you send out. You know, five minutes here and 20 minutes there over the course of a day begins to add up. You take 58 minutes a day down to 30 minutes a day, and now you've got 28 minutes at little increments because you might genuinely get up, hit the ground running, getting breakfast ready for the kids, getting everybody dressed, getting them off to school, heading to work, coming back, fixing dinner, going to practice, overseeing piano lessons, and then they go to bed and you're just overwhelmed with exhaustion. I would be. Well, so what you do is you take 30 minutes off Facebook from 58 to 28 minutes. Not too bad. And it may be 10 minutes here, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes here, three 10-minute segments. First 10-minute segments, you're going to pray for your family. Second 10-minute segment, you're going to pray for your BFG. Third 10-minute segment, you're going to pray for whatever the whatever burden is. That's, three, that's 30 minutes more than, than what we often pray. So do a quick look at your social media, at your internet, uh, internet browsing, and see if you might not be able to find some extra time for those very important matters that, that all of us have. Second, I want you to look back over the, the prayer with me for just a moment and think about just a couple of things. Notice how simple the prayer is. Not a, high, a number of highfalutin theological terms. Nothing necessarily wrong with highfalutin theological terms. What I'm saying is this, this is a pretty simple prayer, but it comes from the master himself. It comes from the savior. It comes from God incarnate. It's very easy to read. It's very easy to pronounce all of the words. They're very pointed, they're direct, they're specific. He's praying about God's name. He's praying about God's kingdom. He's praying about food. He's praying about forgiveness. He's praying about temptation. Five very important things. And there's no doubt about what it is. They're like laser beam prayers that we talk so much about. They're, they're pinpointed. They're, they're isolated on a particular topic. And they're going right for the target, whatever it may be. They're direct, unambiguous, clearly articulated. And they focus on very important matters. And sometimes we might not feel like, you know, I just can't pray like my BFG director. They're praying beautiful prayers because they're praying them from the heart, but that's not where they started. They've been Christians 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever talked to a, a little baby? Of course you have. Our youngest uh, 
grandchild Isabel, just Thursday she started saying Papa a little bit more clearly. I, I was not only thrilled, but I also had to admit that any time I would hear her stutter just a little bit, I was convinced she was saying Papa. <laughs> she's going to learn to speak. She's going to learn to articulate. But right now she's saying, she's, she learned Mimi, Papa, Mommy, Daddy. There's nothing wrong with that. She's just a little one. Uh-oh, that's one of her favorites. And so, don't be ashamed of your praying. If someone says, that's a very simple prayer, say, I'm sorry, I just pray like Jesus does. <laughs> that, that, that'll, that'll put them to it. But don't, don't depreciate the prayers of older brothers and sisters. Just realize you're, you are where you are, and you're going to grow and mature and develop. It might mean staying off the phone a little bit more. I'm going to ask if you'll stay and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of our Savior. We receive his discipleship and instruction as it relates to prayer. Now, Father, as we turn our attention and as Aaron leads us, let our, let our words express our hearts as we sing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.